Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence and worldwide environmental issues. My coffee feature today is Skylark Coffee, listen to the end to find out more. In this episode I speak with Florencia Ciruti. Florencia is a marine biologist specialising in elasmobranchs, sharks and rays. We talk about the excellent work of the group Minorities in Shark Science, the misrepresentation of sharks due to popular culture, and the importance of sharks and rays to the marine environment. Hi Florencia, welcome to the podcast. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, and I'm glad we got to organise it after a bit of um, logistical issues, but uh, all good in the end. Um, so we'll start it off as we always do by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell me a bit about yourself and kind of how you, where your interest in, in the natural world first started? Yeah, sure. So thanks for the invitation as well. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, so yeah, so yeah, my name is Florencia. I, um, what am I, half Italian, half Argentine, born in Mexico. So I did my undergrad in marine biology in Mexico, and I'm Spanish speaker. Um, and yeah, how I got interested in the natural world, I think very, um, a very simple way of just going uh, with my parents into, the, into nature and like into the ocean and playing with the waves. And that's about probably the basics. That's my, my earliest memories of um, holidays are usually on the ocean. Um, and then, you know, I have these role models that are from a different era, like Cousteau, the, the French diver and or oceanographer, um, for example. And then there was this, this show back at the time, there was a, a vet in Africa that was called Atari. This is from a long time ago. Um, and so he was driving a Jeep and he was like curing animals in, in Africa. And I thought, wow, that's super cool. I did not st- study vet, like I'm not interested in medicine, <laughs> but I think those, those kind of shows and people were like, oh, I want to do that. That in combination with going to the ocean for holidays with my parents, that's probably how I eventually got into marine biology. Do you have a, a specific area of focus or specialization? A little bit, yeah. <clears throat> so, yes, yeah, so I study sharks and rays. That's probably the main the main focus of my research has been uh, sharks and rays since the second year of uni. So that was yeah, about yeah, 2001 or so. Um, although, yeah, so that has been the focus of most of my research, but I've been moving around a little bit because I started in a very academic environment, um, you know, like, science, like pure science and biology and, and ecology, and I love it and I still like it. But, um, but at some point when I finished my PhD and I was writing up my last like, chapter, I thought, eh, I, I really like this activity of producing new information, which is the basis of science. Um, that's what science is for, to produce new information. But, um, but I want it to be like, useful. You know? I want to be in a position where I can actually, that my research is guided by management questions and that then my results can address management issues or can be used for management or conservation. So I got out a little bit of the academic environment and I've been working a lot with NGOs and this means also that I've been working a lot in other topics besides or alongside sharks and rays like um, coral reefs in marine protected areas or sustainable fisheries. 
more recently working a lot with climate change and their impacts on megafauna. So yeah, it's 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 been like a little bit zigzag, but the, the common trend has usually been biology and ecology of sharks and rays and how they overlap with fisheries and marine protected areas. And that's that a, a, def a definitely a topic that I think a lot of people a lot of people are interested in and, and want to learn more about. Um, especially a lot of my friends. I, I'm lucky enough to live by the ocean and so many people down here are um, really fascinated by anything to do with sharks. And we have uh, quite oh, a positive where is that? outlook. Um, down in Falmouth in Cornwall in the UK. So okay. um, yep. yeah, there's we don't get too many sharks down here. Um, occasionally some blue sharks, but uh, yeah. not none of the big, big exciting ones, sadly. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of passion down here and a lot of positive opinions of them. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, myths briefly, um, and that's mm -hmm. quite a big part. Not briefly at all. Uh, that's quite a big part of the podcast. Um, so minorities in shark science, uh, an amazing organisation. Could you tell my listeners kind of what it is um, you do at MIS and kind of how um, why that work is so important? Yeah, yeah, that is, is, I love that topic, it's really important, I agree. Um, so this organization is relatively new. Um, it, it was because a couple of girls in the US uh, got together and they got this idea that we should do something to, that, that was not me, I, I'm just t telling their story. Um, something like we should do something to create a, a platform for minorities and particularly black scientists, women have voice and have um, like a, a stronger presence. And, and also because I think the majority of this shark related um, pro, like shows or whenever people think about shark science, they tend to think of a white man. It's kind of like the, the classical idea of a scientist. And, and then whenever you see shows of sharks, it's like a lot of white men. <laughs> and yes, there is a lot of amazing white men working in shark science, it's not a lie. But there's also amazing and a lot of women, a lot of women also, uh, black women, a lot of uh, Latinas as well, like myself. So I think this, this organization uh, came out of this kind of like a, a, a need or, or an urge to give voice to these minorities not only not only white men are in shark science you know um and so what they what the, it does is that it's not created a very big movement it's, it's amazing because it's, there's so much energy in, in the women that are part of this organization they do so many things you know they have like workshops and webinars and events and and they have people from all over the world it's quite based in the u.s in the u.s so there's most of, of the uh, members and friends are part of the u.s but there's a bit everywhere um um, and I think it's just growing massively. I think it's like creating a massive wave of, of awareness of, um, of who can actually uh, be a scientist and, and that it doesn't have to be always white men. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the main things. And also providing opportunities, you know, like I think a lot of people don't have the opportunities to do field work, for example, or I don't know, or to do some workshops to know how to do some skills in a related to science. So they are creating also these opportunities for a lot of, of people. So that's that's really good. There's so much energy in that organization. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. I have seen, um, I've spoken on the podcast before or spoken to guests about um, the lack of representation generally of, of quite a heat a quite a, a, uh, I can't talk sorry I'm very sleep deprived um quite a range <laughs> of 
a range of groups in science in academic circles um there is just a huge amount of of white men in academia um and as you said you know it's not it's nothing against them a lot of them are doing incredible work but it's just um yeah it needs to change um and yeah. also there's i know there's from speaking to my friends who are work are academics themselves i know that it's uh it's not always been like that there is a lot of um minorities working in science they're just not really there they're not really given that representation or that public image very often yeah. um and that needs to change as well and i mean with uh the opportunities that myths give people i think are really important i've seen you work with um groups like love the oceans and national geographic like these amazing big other organizations and, and partners um and give loads of educational opportunities with um sharks generally the the wider public image of sharks is not great they they're quite scary to a lot of people and i think yeah. a, a big reason behind this is the film jaws um I'm oh, guessing. yeah yeah um i've seen it and i didn't really want to swim in the sea for like a week afterwards <laughs> um but uh I know that the author of the book that the film is based off, um, Peter, eventually actually went on to become an ocean activist himself because mm. he was so distressed with the amount of sharks that were being killed and, and hunted and um, sort of vilified because of his work. Um, and I know a lot of people in the, involved in the production of the film feel the same way about their kind of that visual media that has, has spiralled into this thing about just we hate sharks, we've got to fear them. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we did have that really tragic incident recently in Australia um, with a shark attack. And um, obviously we that was that was horrible. We wouldn't wish that upon anyone. But also um, afterwards, we saw kind of people hunting sharks and people trying to find that shark and and kind of seek revenge on it. And um, education around this topic is so, so important. Do you, do you think that um, what can people do as scientists and communicators to really hammer home the message that sharks aren't dangerous and that actually we get, uh, I think is more people get killed by vending machines every year than sharks. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's kind of the oh, most, like uh, most bo um, yeah, boring statistic that I can think of um, or the most <laughs> mundane item that, that kills more people than, than sharks. Um, but yeah, why is this, uh, obviously I've explained a little bit, but why is this um, education so important and what can we do as, as communicators and academics to, to really push that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting topic and it keeps coming like every single time I think I, I talk about what I do to the general public, there is this question. I also work a lot with stingrays and they all, they're also not very loved. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I was working, do you remember Steve Irwin? I don't know, it was this, this, this Australian. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I was in Australia studying a stinger, so at the time he was also killed. So imagine all the, the worry and all the things I got like by family and friends. So yeah, it's a topic that keeps, keeps coming back. And I think um, it's not exclusive of sharks and rays. I think it's all, all the nature, all the animals that are not fluffy and cute tend to have this even the fluffy and cute like tigers they also get this this type of fear right and they are fluffy <laughs> um so i think i guess is this is this fear of something that is faster than you that has sharper teeth than you 
Um, also, you're getting into an environment that is not like we're not ocean creatures, even if we love it, we are land creatures. So we're getting into a different ecosystem, a different environment. It is not ours, it's theirs. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of questions about, about this. So what can we do, I think? Things like what you're doing, and, and I, I know a lot of my colleagues that are scientists that are also quite involved in education, raising awareness, um, kind of like doing two things. One is sharing the knowledge, like the actual scientific knowledge, you know, biology and ecology of sharks, because they do have an important role in their ecosystems. Um, but also sharing the, the or raising awareness about, yes, they are wild creatures. Uh, yes, you need to be respectful, but they're not gonna chase you around to kill you that, that's mm. like that's not that is jaws you know that's hollywood that's not nature <laughs> and and one of the things i used to say for example in one of those talks i used to show a video of me and another uh a colleague who also was a women scientist two two women diving alone um filming a hammerhead school of like maybe a hundred sharks in the galapagos and I show them and I, and I was like, look, I'm surrounded by sharks and I do that as a job. And I've been doing that for like 20 years, oh, maybe not 20, for like 10 years as well. And so is my colleague and I'm alive and you know, I've got all my fingers, I'm here. So this idea that they're gonna come and hunt us just because they have sharp teeth is, is something that is not real. You know? um, however, we, they are wild animals, like any other wild animals we must respect, you know, and, and we must like not try to get super close if unless you're doing something in particular like scientific things you don't want to go and hug a stingray because it has a sting <laughs> um so one of the things for example that as an example that i used to give when i was working with kids is like um you know when you see a dog if, even if it's a fluffy and a golden retriever usually you put your hand the dog smells you as the owner you're respectful with a dog that is a domesticated animal that is used to being around humans and you still are respectful with a dog why would you get so close to any other wildlife that is not domesticated like a dog you know so it's like so as a scientist i think we we have or i feel we have this kind of like responsibility of not only sharing everything that we produce with our science like all these biology facts and cool things like that but also raising awareness that um, they are not these killing machines. They are wild animals. Yes, they do have sharp teeth. Yes, that's true. But they're not going to go around and, and with, with the objective of hunt humans. That is not real. Yeah, that was an excellent answer. And I think that leads us nicely onto the next point, which, because you mentioned, you know, you don't want to go up to a shark and, and touch it or, or go too close unless you're doing actual research, which we'll talk about a bit later. But um, a lot of my listeners and a lot of the, the people around the world just because of um you know the power of social media and uh growth uh, on social media and how big some platforms can get will know who uh ocean ramsey is i'm yeah. uh, the free diver and yeah. uh, apparently she's a marine biologist i'm not actually sure if that's a thing if she's actually <laughs> um but uh can i ask as a personal question um what your opinion of her is and and sort of tell my listeners a bit about what she does and why it's not always the best idea from a scientific perspective yeah um there is a lot of opinions about uh, that type of activity <laughs> i don't know i think um i think it's gen in general it might not be the best example um, mm. to, to have someone that is not doing science being that close to a wild animal. Um, because then you're showing that 
yeah, whoever can do it. And I don't necessarily agree. In the other hand, though, you know how there is always two sides of the story. Like, I'm not a fan of the type of people like her that does this type of thing. Mm. I disagree because what's your point? Like, what are you doing by being so close to the animal? I don't know. But the other side of the thing is that it is still showing that this massive wild animal is not going to just go around and hunt you because it's evil. You know, so while I don't agree so much with it, um, and I am not convinced that someone like that should be doing things like that, um, I still have this one little side of me that says, well, okay, maybe, maybe she's also helping to raise some awareness. You know, at least some people might able to think, okay, you know, maybe this white shark is not that evil killer machine that we think if someone can be swimming around it without, you know, doing much. But then, you know, there are so many of my colleagues that are shark scientists that do swim next to white sharks for actually doing science. So I would prefer those videos. <laughs> mm. For some reason, they're not as famous as she is, but yeah, at least, at least they're doing something more useful. But yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bit of a double, I think, uh, two, two, two sides to the coin, right? It's not black or white. Um, also, you have to keep in mind that, you know, she's a free diver. She has some experience, you know, not, it's not a random human being just going, oh, this, see this massive five meter long shark, let's just go and hug it. You know, it, mm. she does have some experience. So yeah, there's like two sides of the coin. <laughs> okay. No, I just, I just wanted to ask, I've never had to, you know, had the opportunity to ask an actual shark scientist about um your uh, about their opinions on on her because um yeah for my listeners who don't know she's a, a free diver who uh, leads tours to sea sharks and dive with sharks and i know her, her social media influence is huge she has 1.4 million instagram followers which is a lot a lot of people um seeing videos yeah. of her swimming with sharks and as you said it's a double-edged um sword because there's kind of yeah. on the one hand she is kind of you know she's reaching 1.4 million people and telling them this is you know this is okay like they're okay they're not going to hurt you but yeah she is also saying this is okay you can do this which is yeah. kind of not always true as you said um when when educating people about shark conservation um i think what a lot of people don't realize or understand is how vital they are as mm. um and raise as well and and kind of all uh elasmobranchs which kind of the, the overarching uh, group and how vital they are to ocean health and ocean diversity um could you kind of talk briefly about their importance and and maybe as an example uh what would happen to our oceans if sharks just suddenly disappeared if someone snapped their fingers and and all sharks disappeared what would happen to our seas um we'll run out of a lot of fisheries for example yeah they are they're very important and they are disappearing actually not, not all of them but many of them um so yes they do they, they are part of um they're part of a complex you know the ocean is not a simple thing it's a very complex ecosystem um and it has a lot of smaller ecosystem within it and sharks are raised because they are predators. They are an important part. I mean, all animals are part of it. It's like this complex and interlinked system that it moves. Um, the, the thing with animals that are predators is that they control populations. You know, they, they, it's like a, this kind of like a cascading effect that these 
keystone it's called keystone species so these species that are so important that they control the populations and therefore the health of the ecosystems so when you remove these species then there is an, an unbalance you know there is other species that then grow more or there is more of them and that in turn means that other species that are the food of these ones then disappear and so and we have seen these changes this is like I said, it's like it's, it's a complex topic and but the, we have a few studies that we have seen things like this where you remove a predator and, and it creates an imbalance and what would happen i think um uh, i think that also has been seen in the, some of the studies is that you you have some uh, like a too many, too many of some species and too little of others. I think some of the fisheries will be impacted by not having these predators. Um, uh, there is some example about, let me think about it. It was a really good example of, ah, I can't remember. Well, yeah, I think some of the fisheries would be impacted because you need this balance to keep fisheries, whatever, whether it's a small fish or a big fish, whether it's coastal or oceanic, it, they, it relies on a system and when you remove big predators, then that became, uh, becomes a little mess. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's a very broad explanation. Mm. Did I answer the question? Yeah, no, I mean, it's obviously is a, a huge topic. Like, we could spend an entire podcast, just not even just one episode, like a whole series, just focusing on <laughs> why they're so important. So it was quite difficult to, to answer in a brief time. Um, in terms, like, a lot of my listeners are not academic. They're not scientists. They're not come from an academic background. They're just um, just people um, who love sharks and love the ocean. What's the kind of the biggest thing that um, ordinary people, I say ordinary, everyone's ordinary, but uh, you know, non-scientific people, um, what's the biggest thing that they can do from home, from the comfort of of their home uh, to improve their shark education and to improve um, the conservation of, of elasmorynx? Oh, um, geez, that's a lot of things as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And previously your question was about how sharks are important in the ecosystem, but they're also quite important in the economy. That's mm. another topic. And there's a lot of economies that rely on, on shark fisheries. But anyway, uh, so what people can do I think one of the main ones is to educate yourself. I think when we start understanding the the ocean or the animals or the things that are in there, I think there's a lot easier for people to care and then be more careful and, and care after things. So, uh, so for example, a lot of um, when I used to give these talks in a in like community conferences to the general public, like you said, non-expert or non-scientist. Um, I could see the switch in people like first, like uh, saying, looking at me like, why are you studying sharks? And uh, after an hour of explaining all these things, oh, I know, wow, that's really interesting. And thank you. I didn't know. And I'm going to like, I don't know, pay more attention about the plastic that I use or yeah, I don't know, thing, little things that people can do as a society. Um, so I saw these changes sometimes in perception. And that was thanks to an hour of an educational activity. So one of the things that I could suggest that I always suggest is just educate like yourself, like you know you can um look information on from reliable sources <laughs> online um not everything that is online is reliable um attend like community conferences if you know people that are biologists ask them um you can do the things that we now these days are quite aware but we don't not everybody does it like you know change habits your consumption habits so that your impact is less you know like 
the less plastic, the more local food, and all these things, because all these at the these uh, changes in in habits, in consumption habits, at the end have a less impact in nature, and that means that it eventually would help conservation of the oceans, whatever if it's a shark or a dolphin or you know a fish. Um, uh, so educating yourself, um, thinking about your 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 choices as a consumer and what you eat and what you wear how do you consume electricity, how do you consume, how do you use your car, and these things, are like, there, is some, there are some societies that have this very much into their society these days, but there are so many that are not. Um, or even within the same country, there is quite a few differences in, in people's behavior and awareness about environment. So I think this is one of the things that, that um, help, or, or maybe not help, but then can, um, uh, yeah, create a more uh, a better a better environment um, from people's different choices. Um, what else? I think listening to podcasts podcasts is amazing. <laughs> I think that's a great way to to learn, and it's uh, you don't have to read. You can like listen on the way. I've, I do follow quite a few podcasts and different topics that are not sharks, for example. So I think that's a good one. And yeah, I think I could potentially like. Keep thinking about more things if you if you want. <laughs> this is this, this could be always a, lo a long topic, a long um, list of things. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, in with when you say educate yourself, that's a really big one, obviously, and that's a, a good one to focus on. Um, would you recommend just off the top of your head any kind of books to read or films to watch that kind of um, they give a good public, uh, a good positive image and a good educational outlook. Ha! Huh. No, I would. Um, I would need to think about it actually to see mm. what is something a good documentary or what is a good book because the things I tend to read are very academic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are really good books. It's just I don't have them on top of my head right now. But I mean, I could think I about mean, it or, or ask. Yeah, if you if you could send me a, a couple of things later on um, after we finish the recording and I can just put them in the description, maybe. Um, might be a bit yeah, easier for you. One thing I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, and it's kind of the last question, the last big question, is uh, shark tagging. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. this is a big part of research and shark science. Um, can you kind of talk a bit about why why it's important, why you do it, and some of the techniques involved? Yeah, sure. Um, that one I can answer. <laughs> yeah, so tagging is a, like a, a technology that has been growing massively. It it isn't. It has maybe a few decades, but it become it become really really fashionable maybe uh, around two thousand and five or eight. It became like super big, and it's growing so much. Like technology has has is just like improving everything. There's different types of tagging. You know, you have the, the, the old way of tying things, which is just adding like a kind of like adding up a, a piercing, like a piece of plastic with a number um, to an animal and then super cheap and doing that like so many times to so many, like to many animals. And that way is a way to identify an individual. So that means that when you eventually you have tagged, you have put some of these very basic tags in so many individuals. Eventually, you start recatching the same ones, and then you can measure them. You, maybe you, you catch them, you tag them in point A, but then you recatch them like I don't know, 200 kilometers north from that, and then you can uh, estimate movement patterns. So that's the, the kind of like the beginning of tagging, very simple with plastic tags, and that they still happen, and they're still super useful. 
Um, and then the evolution became more into other types of tags, some that are called, for example, acoustic, and some are satellite tags. And then, and then there is like tags within these two. Um, it depends on the research questions. They, they are all looking at, these ones that are electronic tags, they're all looking at how things move. This is called a spatial ecology. So how things move between, uh, within a space, how they use the habitats. Um, if you're tagging, for example, males and females, you want to know what's the difference used between males and females or between juveniles and adults. Um, and all this can then tell you about how animals are using a space, how often, uh, how much space, things like habitat ranges, migration patterns or, or pathways. Um, and this is super useful, for example, because, for example, with fisheries, fisheries have a very, uh, a very big component of spatial regulations fisheries. So, for example, some fisheries, they can go and fish there, but they cannot go and fish over there. Or maybe they fish in during, you know, summer, but they can't fish during winter. That's a temporal um, separation. And all of this, um, all of this tagging, they can help with this. If you know that this particular animal that you're interested, you know that it's having pups in this region during summer, then maybe that zone can be closed, for example, from fisheries to give chance to this animal to have their pups and the pups grow. Or if maybe um, you have this migration of this endangered species that happens every spring, then during this particular area, maybe then during that spring, you move your fleet somewhere else so that you let them pass. Do you know what I mean? So there is, um, what this tags, this tagging technology does is that it helps you know where things are kind of like what, what they do and where and when. Um, so for example, you have acoustic tags that are, acoustic tags, they work in pairs with a receiver. So you put a tag that is in an animal, they have a receiver and this acoustic tag is sending noise, like a pinger. Then the receiver, when, when the tag is nearby the receiver because the receiver has a reception ring, um, the receiver catches the, the pinger and records the tag and the, the tag number. Um, and then every few months, there is usually a team that um, downloads the data from the receivers and then you analyze that data. And then the, the satellite tags, they work in pairs with satellites. So it's, it's a much bigger tag usually. Um, at some point, it has to, I think, bridge the surface to, so that it sends information to a satellite and then you're in your computer and you download the data from the satellite tag, uh, from the satellite. Satellite tags tend to be a lot more expensive. Um, they it depends. It depends what you want to know, but they give you a lot of a lot of information of long-term migration sometimes. Whereas acoustic tags, because they are relying on this receiver that you have there in the ocean, then sometimes the information is a bit more uh, short. What is it like? Uh, the ranges are smaller than the satellite tag. But the basis, the idea, the original idea is the same. You want to use how how animals use space, um, when, how, by who, and which habitats are important maybe which migratory pathways they have, if they have, when they are there, when they are there. And then all of this information can fit into policies for management of fisheries or, or quite often of uh, marine protected areas. Um, yeah, so I think this is like, kind of like the broad uh, explanation of, of tagging. And it's becoming super useful because also technology, like I said, like I mean, the times is improved. Like it used to be, for example, when I did tagging that was in for my PhD, that was 2008, you had this um, like two types of acoustic tags. Now we've got like 10. <laughs> and then these two types, like the super expensive and big ones, they had, I think, what was it like? 
maybe 12 months. I can't remember exactly, but it was something like 12 months of battery life. And now you can have tags that are a third of a size for 10 years. So it has changed a lot and it's, it's only like 12 years, why is it 15 years of, of, of evolution. Um, so yeah, the, they are super useful for, for this type of understanding of how things use um, habitats. That was a really well-rounded and, and succinct answer um, because yeah, it's a huge topic. I, um, sorry, I'm just gonna close my curtains in a minute. There's a really noisy van outside. Um, <laughs> okay. don't know what they're doing but uh yeah i can hear it through the headphones really? so. no. okay go ahead yeah that's uh that's one of the um the downsides of recording just in my bedroom is uh i'm right by uh quite a busy docks so um yeah lots of lots of noise in the background and try, <laughs> and try and get it down as much as possible but yeah, tagging is a huge topic, obviously. Um, I really got interested in it when I, I think a couple of years ago, I, was it maybe a couple of years ago now, quite a while, I saw a video of a new technique for tagging uh, six gill sharks because obviously they live so deep down. Um, it's, uh, they used a submarine and a, a spear gun to tag instead of dragging them up because usually they drag them up to the surface, which can cause them all sorts of you know, light and noise related trauma, which is, yeah. is not great for the shark, obviously. Um, yeah, so it's definitely a massive a topic and you covered it, answered it really well. Um, I think uh, we're pretty much there, but we, we like to end off the podcast episodes with a quick fire round, if that's okay. So it's like four quick questions. You don't have to answer them instantly. I, I call this a quick <laughs> fire round because I had the idea back in episode one to to ask every guest the four the same four questions and have kind of a nice little back and forth um but it never turns out that way because people give such fascinating and interesting uh, great answers that they end up talking i think i had one quick fire round that took about 10 minutes or something um, because <laughs> okay. the guest was so passionate about their answers um so yeah Amen. first first question if you're ready is what's your favorite animal oh yeah that's one of the hard ones i don't have one <laughs> I don't have a favorite animals. I love all living things from plants to elephants. Um, I do love sharks and rays, but that is like a more like a scientist curiosity. Mm. Um, I love predatory, predatory birds. I love cats. I don't have a favorite one. Yeah, no, that's, love them all. A, that's <laughs> a pretty common answer. I, I think <laughs> especially among anyone who, who loves nature, it's, it's pretty hard to, to nail it down. Um, yeah. where's a place you like to go and connect with nature? Like the one location that you feel most at home outside? The ocean. Yeah. Just any, anywhere in the ocean is fine for you. Um, pretty much. Yeah. I, nice. I love the forest and the mountain, but there is, I haven't found a place where I feel, um, happier than when I am out on a boat in the ocean. Yeah. Ideally doing science, but I can also be a tourist. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, yeah, but just yeah, adding the water. That's, yeah. um, do you have a conservation hero? And by this, I just mean anyone in your wide sphere of uh, interest that you look up to and respect and admire. Oh, there's quite a few. Um, from my, from my, like my type of work? Um, yeah, just, just anyone really. Um, it can be can be anyone at all it doesn't even have to be one person if you if you can't think of, of narrowing it down 
Um, yeah, there is, for example, ah, there's too many. There is this the, the one of very famous marine biologists, Sylvia Earle, that I look up to because she's a woman that has succeeded to work in marine science. Um, there's a colleague of mine that also studies dolphins and rays. Her name is, is Kim. That is one of the people that I think, wow, I want to be like her when I grow up. <laughs> um, but then, you know, uh, there is people like I've recently made La Jazz from, from Miss that I think, wow, I've got a few colleagues that I've worked with um, in Mexico or colleagues that I've worked with in the Galapagos that I, you know, that I think uh, these are amazing, you know, humans and scientists. So I don't, I don't think I could like, I have a long list of people I admire. <laughs> Yeah, there is this, you know, these famous people like Sylvia, but yeah, there's quite a few. And every time I go to a conference, for example, I'm like, wow, I admire you. And then, wow, I like what you do. <laughs> it's so difficult to like pinpoint one or two people. Yeah, no, definitely. I think when I'm interviewing um, certain conservationists or certain people in certain areas, you get kind of quite common stock answers, you know, like uh, a lot of UK based wildlife people will We'll say like Chris Packham or David Attenborough, mm. um, yeah. but uh, you know they're they're nice, but they're very common. Whereas I, I always I always really like it when someone in the academic world chooses like a a really special and important scientist, but someone who, you know, is not very well known in the in the wider community. Um, it just mm. yeah, I I just prefer it sometimes. And last question: How do you take your coffee? <laughs> I don't. I have hot chocolate. I think you're instead the, yeah you're the, the second person in a row <laughs> to say that um there is I mean I was joking about this I, I had an interview yesterday with someone I was joking about this um because you're the second person to to say hot chocolate in about a week um but you're also nice. like one of the maybe the seventh or eighth person to just outright say nope don't like coffee um, I should really change the the name of the podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, yeah, maybe hot chocolate with uh, with conservationists. Yeah, or, or or just a cuppa, like the Australians say, just a cup of whatever. It yeah, could be a, tea yeah. or juice. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be a bit a bit more general. Well, maybe ask people beforehand, um, and then change the name of that that particular episode. But um, yeah, naming. <laughs> I think I think that's pretty much it, really. All I wanted to ask you, um, we always like to finish, or I always like to finish by uh, just asking if there's any online platforms, or or if you have any, um, where can people see your work or get involved with what you're involved with? Um, anyone you'd like to shout out, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, yes, I do have my own web page that needs some updating, but I do have. Um, I can share that with you. Um, I do. Um, I'm, since I became part of Miss, I always suggest to look that up because I think it's amazing. Um, but you know that. Uh, yeah, and also in terms of profession, professionally, I do have my Twitter. Um, the other social media, I use it more in a personal way. But but um, my Twitter, I'm happy to like. Um, share in, in use because I do share a lot of information about biology and conservation and science in my Twitter. So I can share my web page and my Twitter name. Yeah, sure. If you if you do that, um, I think a lot of uh, scientists and, and listeners of the podcast use Twitter. 
Um, I yeah. only use it from my podcast uh, perspective, not my own personal one. Ah, I will, I will look you up. <laughs> um, yeah, but do you want me to send that after? Or? Uh, yeah, but I mean, what, if you if it's easier to say, you can just say it. But I'll put a link uh, after. Well, the the Twitter is the flow ray, so that's pretty easy. Flow as in my my initial name, the flow flow ray. But my webpage has my last name, so that's not the very easy. It's called um, Saruti Marbiol. <laughs> so it's not the easiest um, thing to say. So I might just send you my webpage. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I'll put a link in the episode description. Yeah, yeah um, that's probably easier. And and my Twitter is easier, the floor right. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'm glad you shouted out, Miss, because obviously that's uh, what we talked about today um, for yeah. a big portion of it. But um, yeah, all that's left to say is thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to me about some really important issues. Well, thank, thank you. That was great. I love talking about this and, and I hope I did answer all, all your questions. Um, but yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm glad there is someone that is doing this type, of, this type of thing. Thanks again to Florencia for taking the time to speak to me today. You can find the links to her social media in the description below. So in today's episode, I'm featuring Skylark Coffee. Skylark pays top prices above fair trade. They also donate an extra £1 per kilo to support the environment, including the conservation of Skylarks and the people exploited by coffee supply chains. The link to their website will be, as ever, in the description. A big thank you to those who support me on Ko-fi. Your donations mean I can do more walking podcast episodes, cover more exciting events in the future, and support sustainable and ethical coffee growers. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.